Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the deal. It go down. It go down in the deal. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Sarah Bramal Ramos, and I am one of the hosts on the channel. And I'm here today with Lawrence Zhang to talk about his new book, Power for a Price, The Purchase of Official Appointments in Qing, China. Welcome to New Books, Lawrence, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Hello. Thanks for having me. Of course. So let's start at the beginning with your beginning. How did you come to work on Qing history? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I actually, um, I suppose I was always interested in Chinese history more generally. I grew up here in Hong Kong, and uh, I remember when I was a kid, like, reading... um, high school textbooks and I was like seven um, reading high school Chinese history textbooks just for fun and it was kind of a really nerdy thing to do but you know when you have nothing else to do at home and no siblings to play with my sister is much older than me and um, that's sort of what happens I guess and and from then on it's just uh, yeah um, I've been always interested in Chinese history even though I didn't study it at all in college and um after working for a little bit after college, I decided I want to get a PhD in history, I guess. Um, and that was that. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Um, so I usually ask authors how they came to work on the topic of their book. And, you know, for me, that's very often a story I haven't really, you know, heard of or read before, but you actually talk about this a little bit in your acknowledgments. So you have in your acknowledgments of this book, um, you describe how as a graduate student, you were 
quote, mumbling something about an obviously dead end idea with your dissertation advisor when they suggested, as dissertation advisors usually do, that you go and read a book. <laughs> and the book was about office purchase, after which, you know, you were you realized you'd found the topic for your work. Uh, so I'm wondering if you might say a little bit more about this. What hooked you on this topic specifically? The dead end topic I was mumbling about was um, some silly sort of semi-biographical kind of study of this official during the judging period. Um, you know, as first, second year grad students tend to do, you know, you'll try to look for gaps in the literature, right, so to speak, however, however minuscule those gaps are. And I was... Yeah, I read some document. Uh, I can't remember where I came across it randomly. And of this guy, Ying He, who you might have heard of, uh, who was an official during the judging period. And he was suggesting something about mining or something along those lines. And I was just pitching this to Philip Kuhn, my advisor. And he's like, no, 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 don't work on anything biographical. That'll kill your career. Instead, he's like, well, if you're interested in this sort of thing, you know, go go read this book. And this book was Xu Daling's you know, the office purchase system in the Qing. And um, so never heard of this guy before. I don't know what this is. I don't know anything about this topic. So I went to Yanqing and took it out and saw that it's a really old book. It's from 1950. And I was like, okay, what is this? Read it. It's pretty short, written in that sort of Republican, semi-classical, semi-Baihua style. And then I was like, wait, what? How come I don't know anything about this? And then I went around talking to people, you know, and I discovered that I wasn't the only one who don't know anything about it. And this is, you know, a system where you can pay money to the Qing government, starting in very early Qing, all the way to the end. Then you can just become an official by paying the money, skipping the exams and the whole bit. And I was like, uh, what? This is, you know, how, how, how does this work? I don't know enough about it to really ask intelligent questions, but I realized that there were lots of questions to be asked and very few answers because once you start looking, you realize that there's been very little work done on it. There, there, there's a set of like three articles by one author, Kondo Hideki, uh, written in the 60s. And at that point, that was basically it. There was a master's thesis in Taiwan, but it, it's not... It wasn't even published um, and at that point. Now it's been published. You know, uh, that's it. Yeah. The, the sum total of work is zero, basically. Nice. So you, so you found your gap as, uh, as graduate students are. <laughs> yeah, I found a gaping hole, I feel like. Um, uh, and the, the, the hole was pretty big and pretty wide. Um, and, you know, I, I haven't done anything near enough to fill it. But... Another thing I remember was, um, you know, at uh, at Harvard, the G three conference, so where you sort of have to present your topic, right, um, to the faculty and other grad students. And so I presented mine, and I remember some of the questions from professors and graduate students alike was like, "Are you sure this is real? Like, are, are you are you sure this is actually going on? Are you sure they're not just selling like honorary titles and you know?" like not actual offices because because it's been out of the picture for so long in academic discussion people just assumed it 
didn't really exist or it's it's only a very minor thing or it's leeching and I talk about this in the book a little bit yeah so yeah it, 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 that's when I really you know was convinced that I've got something going here mm-hmm. absolutely and you mentioned the academic discussion we'll get to that um <laughs> But uh, towards the end, but, you know, as you were talking about, you know, developing this project, um, something else that you mentioned in the acknowledgments is that you have been working on this for a little while um, was, was, um, you know, as, you know, big books, good books, but books that fill gaping holes take time. Um, But was this the book that you thought you would write ultimately when you started working on this project or when you started on transforming um, you know, this book into the book that it is today? How did how did that process, you know, change um, what this book looked like? Well, if your question is about, you know, uh, how the project looked from start to finish uh, from the dissertation stage on, no, I had no idea what I was going to write. Um, in fact, when I started researching it, I had no idea what I was going to find because like I said, the last study was like from the 60s. So uh, the the amount of secondary literature on it was so negligible at that point when I began working on it that I had to sort of figure it all out um, and figure out where things are and what things might I'd find. And my advisor in that regard was not really able to help me because he didn't know much about it either. This is not his topic, right? And so when I began, I really didn't know what I was going to see. I thought I would write a lot more about merchants. I think that's the sort of default assumption going in. And I think others thought the same as well, was that, you know, Who's going to be buying offices? Well, got to be people with money, right? And who are people with money? Well, got to be merchants who might not be smart enough or, you know, have enough time to take exams, but have the money to pay for a job. So, you know, I thought I would find more of that. But in the end, I actually found relatively little on that subject. Could just be me, you know, not being successful in that regard. And someone else might come and tell me, haha, you you know, you're wrong, um, you know, five, 10 years later. But uh, I ended up writing about uh, literati and and like these these you know high official families, um, which was not really what I was expecting. I guess going in, um, the other thing was uh, I I felt I needed a smoking gun, right? Um, you you to prove that this was actually real um, to assuage some of the anxieties about whether this is actually happening or not, or this was actually happening or not in the Qing. Uh, I had to find something that proves definitively that this was going on. And it turns out it was everywhere, the evidence, um, and scattered in all kinds of places, but you have to sort of piece it all together. So, so um, and, and the, the funny thing was the archives was, uh, the first historical archive specifically in Beijing was actually of less use than I imagined it would. Uh, so I spent a year in Beijing, but uh, it was not the most productive year because the archives was not that useful, relatively speaking. Um, it has a lot of stuff on it, but a lot of it was bureaucratic sort of administrative minutiae, which, you know, which can be very interesting. Um, but for someone looking to understand a topic about an institution that we know relatively little about uh getting too much into the weeds wasn't particularly useful at that point. Like that would be a, a further project down the road, maybe. Yeah. 
Interesting. No, that's super interesting in terms of thinking about um, what you might have expected versus what you found. Um, with that, as you were, you know, you've already introduced the system of, you know, office purchase a little bit. Um, it allowed you to skip the exams and the whole bit. Um, so as you say, it was a legal and open mechanism operated, you know, run by the Qing itself that allowed men to pay for appointments, um, or at least the, you know, place in the line for appointments. Um, to zoom out, you know, far from the minutiae, which we will get into, you know, why why was this system so widely used? Because one of your you know, real findings is that it was, as you say, it was everywhere. Um, why did people use it? What was the the appeal? Well, I mean, there's the push and a pull, right? I mean, the the state that sells these appointments, and I call them sale of appointments because I should make this distinction clear, right? especially if the audience uh, who are, say, familiar with, say, the French system of finality, um, these were not specific jobs that they were selling. Uh, they were selling appointments in the sense that you will then be, uh, when once you paid, uh, you would then be uh, eligible and we would get into line to be appointed as, say, a secretary in a ministry in the capital, um, but you don't own that specific job, right? Whereas, like in the European systems of venality in general, uh, when you buy an office, you actually, it's a property, and oftentimes you can resell that property, maybe with a fee, but to pay to the government to transfer it, but you, you own that thing, whereas in the Chinese system, you don't. Um, so when the government sells these appointments, I mean, obviously money was a big draw. Uh, you, you, you raise funds uh, quickly and efficiently and from people who were willing to pay you, uh, which is also nice uh, compared to taxing people who don't necessarily like to be taxed. Um, uh, but I argue also that there's a, there's a political sort of dimension to that, right? You're, you're roping in and uh, co-opting really uh, elites who then literally have a financial investment in your government uh, and in aligning your interests with those of those elites who paid in, right? Um, and for, for, for people who buy offices, I mean, uh, actually, there's a really interesting statistic uh, came out recently about how um, since the COVID years in China, uh, the civil service exam has taken a, you know, people have gotten much more interested in it again and wanting to join the government. And back then, you know, a career in government was, as you know, the most desirable job track available to one if one were male. And um, you you want your kids to go in there if you could, especially if you're from a family that's already in that line of work, right? Um, and so there's a lot of incentive for you to get in it and the exam being so uh, difficult and so based on basically probability, since even if you're really intelligent and whatnot, you, you can still fail multiple times for no particular reason, just because of game of numbers. Um, if an opportunity arises where paying some money guarantees you a, a step in the, in the door, why wouldn't you do that? why wouldn't you do that for your kids, right? I mean, I know plenty of people would do that if, uh, say, you know, universities offer that choice, and we know that happens. So, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, you were uh, one of my favorite um, examples that you talk about in the book is, I think it's of uh, a father who's trying to buy a position for his son. And he's sort of right up against the deadline. So it's a little too late. Oh, yeah. So he's, yeah. he's sort of, you really get the sense that he's desperate to find someone to loan him money so he can pay, right? He's just sort of, you were talking yeah. about, you know, people people are willing to, and he is so, so desperate. Yeah, to... and he ended up asking his subordinates, and, yes. which is against the rules. And so they, they all got in trouble for it. Um, yeah. Yes. It, it did not end well, but you really get the sense with that story that, um, yeah, he is trying so hard to buy to buy a position for, for his son um, and to sort of guarantee that. Exactly. Um, and also in a, in a system where seniority matters, um, where, you know, getting in early helps you uh, in your career um, and, and where many jobs are sort of time gated because, oh, you have to serve for three years before you can move on to the next one, blah, blah, blah. Um, in that case, then getting in early makes a big difference, right? And why waste 10, 15 years trying to pass the exams when you can, well, you can get started. You can still take the exams while you're, while you're working. Uh, nothing's stopping you from doing that. And people did that routinely, but, you know, get in the door first. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Um, you were comparing there the in you know the, your answer to my previous question. You were comparing the system in the Qing to you know similar ones that existed um, in Europe, and this is something you get into a little bit in the introduction, um, where you um, you know really clarify assumptions and misconceptions about office purchase. Um, as you were saying that there's not a lot known about it, and you know people when you first started working on this weren't really sure it's, it was real. Um, so part of the reason I'm assuming. The introduction does the work that it does to clarify assumptions is because you run into them quite often. <laughs> so, so is there, you know, right at the beginning here, is there one misconception that, you know, before we get any further that you'd really like to address? Um, is there something that you encounter more often than, you know, a different conception maybe, or one that you would say is most harmful that you want to sort of, um, you know, poke a hole in or just, you know, put, put to rest right here at the, at the start. Well, the, 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 the one that comes up reflexively almost is that this is corruption, right? But uh, not, 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 not necessarily corruption. Like the English word corruption covers a lot of meanings. Uh, the Chinese term uh, I'm thinking of specifically is time, right? Uh, which is, you know, corruption, uh, of the illegal kind where money is exchanged under the table for nefarious reasons um, and uh, usually involves trading access or public power for money. Um, so if a university president uh, allows some kid to uh, be admitted to his school because that kid's parents bought him a house in his own name, that would be that would be corruption, right? But um, uh, if the same thing were to happen, but that person's parent, that kid's parents uh, donated a jet, giant new stadium to the university, that's not tanwu in that sense of the word, um, in that illegal sense of the word. You can say it's corrupting, right? It's it. There are there are there are sort of some sort of you know degeneration going on in, in, in these systems. But that's a different meaning of that word. So a lot of people assume that this was illegal in some way. Um, and I think that's that's a misconception. Uh, 
this um, I, the book doesn't talk about the illegal side. I'm sure that happened as well, uh, where there were officials who were selling offices on the side to line their own pockets. But in this particular instance, this the system that I'm talking about uh, was approved by the emperor, you know, uh, from the top down. This was all legal. Uh, this was all above board. Prices were crystal clear. Um, and uh, the money that you spend goes to the state's coffers. Uh, so in that sense, it's not corruption. Uh, not in that, in, not in that illegal sense of the word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And when you're talking there about, you know, the legal system, the, you know, very much allowed system um, approved by the emperor, approved by some emperors, um, you know, uh, uh, vociferously, <laughs> some emperors were were um, particularly, you know, defendant defenders of the system. Um, you get into you sort of lay out the 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 just how allowed it was, and just how legal it was, and just how regulated it was in sort of the first three chapters um, of your book. So I'll just very briefly summarize them just a little bit here. Um, so chapter one outlines the basic operation of the system. So you look at what was for sale and you know, how it worked and yeah, emphasize that the system was legal, open, and regulated. Um, you then look at how the board of personnel managed the influx of officials. Um, so you know you note that among many many things here. I should note there's a lot going on, but one of the things you point out is that office purchase users constituted a really significant portion of the Qing officialdom um, and that purchase users and examination degree holders were not mutually exclusive. Um, You could parachute in without a degree or you could just use it to sort of top up um, your career path. Um, and then you look at how the Board of Revenue managed the finances. So you look at you know where the money went, um, and you point out that you know offices were not just sold to raise money after disaster. They were, in fact, um, this was a key part of the Qing state's finances. Um, so that was very brief, um, and we're not going to have quite enough time to dive into each individual part of the system. Of course yet. not. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's a lot. Please see, please see chapters one through three, uh, but. You know, zooming out, um, I'm wondering if what in all of this, as you were doing the research for this, you know, project, what surprised you the most? What were you most surprised to sort of find um, and uncover as you were researching office purchase um, further? Huh, good question. I guess um, maybe surprise is not the right word, but um, at least I find it particularly fascinating is how how uh, complicated the whole administration was, right? And uh, in some ways, I mean, you re- you get a sense of this reading Xu Daling's book from 1950 because his is mostly an institutional history, uh, rely- relying on published sources about, you know, regulations and stuff. Um, and you already know that that's happening. But once you actually get into the, like, sources themselves and you read these regulations and stuff and so on, you're like, what? <laughs> like you, you need you need a you need a you need a legal degree just to like figure out some of the legalese behind some of their rationales for for administration. And uh, you know, I spent three chapters on this, but you know, I, I can write like there, there, there's probably like two three books just on that alone. And and at some point, maybe I will get around to it uh, because my chapters are. Uh, more like impressions of how this worked rather than a very exact, you know, uh, uh, narrative. Because if I were to do that, I'll run out of space very quickly. Um, 
because the system lasted so long and had so many permutations. Um, but when you read them, like there, there are different kinds of priorities that you can pay for, and uh, as you pay for them, um, uh, you you get appointed faster into different in different lines. Uh, there are various kinds of maneuvers you can do. Uh, to get yourself a maybe a slightly cheaper price, and then they they constantly try to plug those loopholes. So um, that that you see memorials, and I don't really talk about this in the book, but you see memorials that say like, oh, if this person buys this first, and then goes here, and then buys this, then he can skip this part, and he'll pay like a thousand tails less. We can't let that to happen. So we need to we need to normalize the price so that they they are the same regardless of how you get there. It's it's stuff like that, and you're just like, wow, okay. I mean, it's bureaucracy, but you know, it's also fascinating, like seeing the inner workings of the a, a joint project, basically between the board of personnel and the board of revenue, uh, mostly uh, talking about these things and and sort of figuring out, you know, how to price them or, or what path should people take or how should we appoint these people, right? Uh, they're making big choices here in some ways because um, uh, one of the features of this is that. Uh, the sales, at least until the mid nineteenth century, anyway, uh, the sales were not continuous. So, so opportunities to buy substantive offices that you can get appointed to only happen sporadically. So, if let's say the government allowed sales five years ago, and now wants to open sales again to new buyers. Um, if there's still a lot of people left over from five years ago, then there will be no new purchasers, right? Nobody would come forward because I have to wait until all those other guys are cleared out. Why, why would I do that? Um, so to incentivize that, they create new lines uh, where, well, if you bought it in this current round, you will get in faster than those guys in the previous rounds. And you can push someone back like that forever if they're unlucky enough to be in the back of the line. Um, and those kind of dynamics, you know, it really can change someone's career or ruin lives in some cases, um, uh, depending on how it shakes out for each individual in question. But, you know, there are bureaucrats in the in these central organs making these decisions, right? You know, okay, we appoint the, this many people first and then this many people from the previous rounds, and, and it gets super complicated. And, and it's, it's fascinating to watch um, how that all unfolded and changed over time. You're mentioning there that it's, you know, super bureaucratic. Um, and I guess that really helps explain then why it's families, and we'll get to families, but why it's really families who are already in the bureaucracy who are able to best use the system, right? Because you talk about how it's sort of, you know, in order to understand and, you know, be aware and be on the lookout and have the resources ready in case, um, in case another round opens up, you kind of have to be plugged in. Um, right. And you, you look at a little bit, um, how, you know, families who are already, they already have officials in the family. They are the ones who, you know, make, um, best use, I suppose, of the system. They're the ones who are also buying offices. So there's, would you say that the bureaucratic nature of this also helps explain that aspect of the system? I think so. I think it's 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 difficult to get into if you're like an outsider, right? Um, like, what would you know what to buy, uh, which jobs to get, which are the good ones, which are the bad ones? Um, and also, uh, I, I make this argument sort of in the book uh, where um, 
let's say you buy a job as a county magistrate, right? Um, or as a secretary in a, in a ministry in Beijing, like um, you can get assigned to some really crappy places uh, if you're not lucky, because it's all by a lot. Uh, there's no, you know, you can get stuck in somewhere middle of nowhere. Um, without a network, a, a social network of some sort that you can draw on to for support, for you know patronage, for protection. Uh, just jumping in like that as a newcomer is very risky as an investment. Why not just buy a pawn shop um, and uh, you know make some money? Uh, why why do this, right? Uh, so it only makes sense when you think about it to do this. I think uh, if you already have, if you already know what you're doing, because uh, otherwise it's a highly potentially highly unrewarding investment uh, in in terms of what you're doing with that money. Of course, I'm sure some people did it anyway, just for the prestige. But uh, if you do it for that, uh, you could also just buy the cap and gown, uh, which doesn't come with the substantive office, which would be much cheaper. Um, and merchants frequently do that, uh, and overseas merchants even. Uh, so like overseas Chinese in Southeast Asia, you see them sometimes in pictures in Qing robes, right? Um, those are purchased uh for uh for prestige reasons they're not actual substantive offices they're, they're just titles um or on the cover of my book that little kid um of um wearing a ting rope uh, an official rope of some sort his grandfather was a grand secretary um i'm sure he 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 actually probably bought a substantive office in that case uh but you know there, there's prestige to be wearing that rope uh and if you just want that you can just pay for the much cheaper rope and not have to go through the rigmarole of actually getting appointed to some, you know, boonies in the mountains in Fujian or something. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off and of course running the risk that when you are appointed to the boonies in the middle of nowhere that you will be um uh you will not you know do well at your at your review right you you talk a little bit about how you how you have to you do actually have to even if you buy an office you uh you will be reviewed um and if you completely fall on your face that is a lot of money you just wasted or your family potentially just yeah wasted. potentially or or you just die of some illness in the middle of nowhere i mean that that happens too why leave your comfortable home in yangzhou you know when you're trading salt um and go somewhere to be some magistrate and have to deal with all these other civil servants. What, what, who would do that? I mean, it doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. We're we're talking about individuals here, and you know, sort of their rationales for why they're doing it. Um, and you 
get into this much more um, in sort of the middle part of the Sorry, book. Sorry, I'm skipping ahead. <laughs> no, 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 no. You're leading us there. Um, this is this is really what you look at uh, in chapters four and five. So you first look at buyers. You know why some buyers choose to purchase offices, in particular, why some of them choose to purchase offices in the places that they do. So you talk a lot about, in particular here, how you know Bannerman um, prefer to buy offices in Beijing. Um, and then in chapter, yeah, it does make sense. Why, why, why go to the boonies um, <laughs> if you can help it? Um, and then you look at why families, um, why families and buyers um, choose to do this. So you look at um, those who, you know, had the financial means in order to do this. Um, you touch on how families who had already succeeded through the exams, you know, tended to buy offices. Um, so there's a whole lot of different case studies here. But is there, in amongst that wealth, is there maybe one individual or one family that you want to particularly highlight? Um, who are they and what are they doing buying offices? Um... <laughs> I talk about two instead. Um, so, um, yes. the, the, I, will, the, I will allow it. <laughs> the Jiang family from Changshu, I, I find fascinating uh, because they, they are so accomplished on paper. So this sort of goes into a bit of historiography, right? Um, so the old model uh, from Ping Ti Ho, He Ping Di, uh, his book Ladder of Success, you know, he talks about, uh, and that's foundational to to this area, where he talks about exams and meritocracy and social mobility and so on. Um, and the old model uh, with him was that, well, you know, uh, families rise and fall uh, through exam success, and uh, the families that uh, pass exams, you know, rise in stature, right? And then after a while, if they fail to produce exam candidates, uh, successful exam candidates, then they would fall in stature, downward social mobility. And if you look at the Jiang family, I have a family tree in the book. Um, this is very old. This is a very old family tree that I made, by the way, um, from my dissertation days, and keep using it. Um, I'm sick of staring at it by now. But um, if you look at it, just like just with the people who earned high exam degrees, so Jing Su and Jiren degrees, you know, it does look a bit like that downward trajectory, you know, where the later generations are not as successful in the exams and, you know, maybe things are not going as well. And then and then the, the, the family actually tragically sort of, uh, the records stop showing up. Uh, typings, typings, I think, really did a number on them. Um, and then they scattered or the, the records are not clear after that. There is supposedly a genealogy in Jilin University, but um, they keep telling me it's it's not available. So um, I, I, I still have not been able to see it uh, after all these years. Anyway, so <clears throat> this family was super accomplished, right? Uh, from the Kangxi to the early Qianlong period. Um, early to mid-Qianlong period. Two of them were grand secretaries. Uh, one of them was... Yongzheng Emperor's number three man in government, basically after Ortai and Zhang Tingyu. And his son, uh, Jiang, Yi, uh, Jiang, Jiang Pu, was a grand secretary under uh, Qianlong uh, in early years of Qianlong. So, you know, really accomplished. Um, and then you, you look at the family tree, if you add in the purchases, and all of a sudden, like every male member that I can find any kind of record of, Granted, there might be, you know, ones who didn't, but um, because I don't have a genealogy. 
but uh, every male member that you 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 have some trace of, like in the gazetteer, they will list like, oh, this guy had six sons. Uh, Jiang Pu, I think, had six sons or something like that, and they all had offices, uh, but most of them had not passed the exams. Uh, at least not at a at a Jiren or Jingzhi level where you would expect them to then earn offices. So they bought their jobs. Um, one of the sons uh, became um, the prefect of Taiwan and supposedly did a bunch of stuff in Taiwan when he was there. He his 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 career was entirely purchased um, and and paid for. Um, and the funny thing about the Jiang family is it connects to my story in two other ways, um, which is interesting. So the scion, the, 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 the top person on my family tree, Jiang Yi, uh, he was a, an official and the, the Kangxi emperor. And um, uh, he had written a memorial uh, complaining about the quality of people buying offices and saying that, you know, this practice should be stopped. And um, this memorial was then collected into the Jingshu Wenbian in the 19th century and celebrated as a kind of an anti-purchase, you know, rhetoric from early Qing, right, um, from a very well-respected literati. Um, but if and someone alerted me uh, um, about this anecdote, and I looked it up in the Kangxi Shijuzhu, uh, the Kangxi's emperor's official diary, um, where uh, there's this instance uh, where Jiang Yi asked the Kangxi emperor if he can buy. Well, he didn't ask the emperor directly. I guess he asked if he can buy uh, uh, promotions. Uh, at least promotion in rank, uh, if not actual promotions, um, for himself. And Kangxi Kang was like, well, what do you guys think? Like, he's asking his ministers, right? And and his, his close advisor was like, well, this, this is all within regulation. It's fine, you know, we should allow it. And Kangxi is like, no, 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 no. You guys go back and look at, look at what he wrote about purchases and then come back. And so they checked. Uh, a few days later, Kangxi asked them again, so have you guys looked? And they're like, yeah, 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 we read it. Um, uh, he's he's wrong, you know. He he he's 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 wrong in saying that you know purchase is entirely without merit, blah blah blah. And Kangxi is like, yeah, no, no, he's 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 being hypocritical. So you know, uh, I, I'm denying his request. Um, I'm summarizing very quickly here, but you know uh, that that I think illustrates really kind of well how there is a level of hypocrisy here. And I don't think it's just limited to him. I think it's quite widespread uh, between the public rhetoric of people complaining about purchase and uh, saying that it's a bad system because, you know, what good can come of people who buy their offices, right? They must therefore be terrible um, because they didn't pass the exams and so on. And then privately, you know, buying very much in earnest. Um, because the system was there and it did allow you to get ahead. And it, it was really designed for people who are already, uh, well, wealthy, obviously, but also well-connected. Um, so if presented with such a system, why wouldn't you use it? You have to be crazy to say, I'm above this. I'm, I'm not going to touch this. Uh, I'm sure there might have been people who did that. Um, but I would imagine that's a minority. And the other the other side that connects uh, to my story is um, the big sort of 
set of data that I have for purchases that round in 1798, um, the person whose memorial originated, who originally started that round, was a member of this Jiang family. Um, yeah, he's the son of uh, Jiang Pu, and he was at the time the vice minister of the Board of Revenue. And so in his in that capacity, he was writing to the Qianlong Emperor, uh, well, technically the Jiaqing Emperor, um, asking to asking to open a new round of sales uh, to, to raise funds. And uh, so I, I thought that sort of very neatly sort of ties a lot of what I talk about in the book together uh, in this one family. Um, and the other family I sort of want to briefly mention is is the is the Wu family, where where the the dad you know bought offices for like his young little kids, right? And and it, in this case, I was able to look at the genealogy, and you know they were like two three years old uh, little toddlers uh, buying offices that are you know rank five, rank six, which outranks a county magistrate, and spending vast amounts of money doing it. Um, Aside from the obvious question of well, where did the money come from? Uh, it's it's I think illustrative of how yeah, like you said, the sort of uh, fear of missing out uh, that that these parents suffer from, right? And and the the, the desire uh, to really sort of make sure their kids are well placed um, and and as as early as possible uh, in order to get ahead. And and it sort of really illustrates that sort of, sort of need to do that. Mm-hmm. You have a great line um, in your discussion of the Jiang family. You have Kangxi responded with a devastating. When Jiang Yi was a censor, he memorialized about the personnel selection process and severely criticized the ills of office purchase. Now he wants to use it himself, which is particularly inappropriate. This request for additional ranks is denied. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kang, Kangxi was very sharp and and remembered exactly what he said. Yeah, uh, the the Kangxi Chijitsu is is an amazing source, by the way. Um, it's uh, it, we only have uh, parts of it, but uh, unlike the later Chijitsu of later emperors, which is very dry and mundane stuff, uh, this one contains a lot of dialogues between him and his uh, closest advisors, and there's a lot of really interesting like. Uh, back and forth uh, among them. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is a particularly fascinating episode. So thank you for highlighting it. Um, you're with that though. We sort of thinking of how you know um, you're talking about a family who you know critiqued it, an individual who critiqued the system, which moves us delightfully to the very last part of your book, where you look at how different groups viewed office purchase. So you look at how emperors viewed it, how the public viewed it, and how historians have viewed it. And you you look at, you take sort of like a comprehensive look, um, you touch on novels, emperors, and you cover criticisms and defenses. Um, and as a reader, I will say, I found the defenses particularly fascinating. <laughs> but in terms of the historical narrative, you show how criticisms really came to sort of dominate, especially criticisms about the system being corrupt. Um, And that tends to really, you know, dominate um, the historical narrative that historians wrote about the system later. So I'm hoping you could give listeners a sense of this. How did critiques, um, you know, change and, yeah, dominate the story towards the end of the Qing in particular? Ah, good question. I I think... um... This is a part of the book that I feel like I 
I could have probably done a better job on, but also would have required a lot more time and and also a lot more space. Um, partly because in the 19th century, it gets super complicated. Um, Elizabeth Casker has talked about this a little bit in her article. Uh, I talk a little bit about this in the book, but basically, you know, power to sell offices got devolved uh, to the provinces, like everything else, you know, as Philip Kuhn has shown us 50, 50 years ago, yeah, um, you know, uh, during the typings. Uh, and then the central government tried to sort of claw it back, right? Um, and because of that, the the whole operation of the thing got disrupted and, and changed as a result. Uh, whereas previously, uh, Qianlong centralized it all in Beijing and it had stayed in Beijing for over 100 years. Um, and then giving it out to the provinces led to a price war, led to you know, really confusing records. Um, uh, it, it, it became difficult for me to try to keep track of exactly what every step was. Uh, that's why the I think the timeline in my book might have been a little blurrier uh, in the mid-19th century onward. Um, but also, uh, uh, as far as I can tell, the, the relative importance of purchase as a revenue source also declined <clears throat> compared to earlier. Um, but um, uh, the criticism uh, mounted, I think, partly as a result of, uh, in because there was a large influx of people who bought offices on the cheap during the typings, and the and the immediate post typing aftermath when when prices uh, crashed, as provinces tried to compete against each other to sell more offices to raise funds for their local militia or whatever. Um, and the central government lost control. Um, so lots of people were waiting for offices and the government wanted to find ways to sort of appoint people more quickly to, to get rid of them. Um, and, uh, and, and, and also maybe it's just a, a function of the general sort of decay of Qing administration, right? That they couldn't quite, or there was no longer the uh, ability to handle these sort of problems uh, efficiently. Um, keep in mind, uh, the Qing civil service never really expanded in ranks in the number of offices that were available. So whereas you can you can infinitely sell offices to as many people as you want, the number of places they can be appointed to remain relatively finite. So what you ended up happening, what ended up happening, if you look at these Tongguanlu from Leiqing, for example, so registers of officials in provinces and such, was there was a lot of supernumerary people who were being appointed to these ad hoc positions willy-nilly uh, for various tasks um, in order to satisfy them uh, for having purchased something in government and to give them a, a, a job, so to speak. And you see sources talk about that. And I think that has probably, and maybe I don't make this very clear or clear enough in my book, um, that has probably led to uh, a sense that things were spinning a bit out of control and that people were therefore grafting more than ever because they don't know when the next opportunity was for them to uh, to get a chance to to get some of their money back. Right? And this is where the, 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 the word corruption in English, I feel, again, is very limiting. Um, it, it, I think purchase is corrupting in that sense, right? You do have a financial incentive to to claw back the money you paid for. Um, just as, and I make this argument in the book, uh, just as you, 
have every incentive to claw back the investment you paid in kind and time uh, if you earn an office through the exams, right? Uh, you, you still invested a lot, just maybe not, you know, directly in government, but but you, you gave up a lot of stuff to pass those exams and you want some return to show for it too. Um, and this sort of increasing frenzy for office and the shorter tenure um, may have contributed to that sort of sense of, of decay. Um, yeah, I don't know if I put that exactly in that in the book because I feel this is much more speculative and um, and it's much harder to prove something like this uh, without a lot of evidence and I just didn't have room for that evidence uh, at that point in the manuscript so I just sort of left it at that um, yeah I think one connection you definitely draw out though is that the fact that, you know, these critiques about the system and the corruption that, you know, the perceived at least corruption, the declarations of cor corruption, that this is how, and, you know, really does color how historians tell the story of the purchase system um, or not, as the case may be. Um, and I think you, I, th that connection is definitely one that jumped out to me, um, which then, of course, leads to thinking and thinking again about what we mean when we talk about meritocracy <laughs> in, in the Qing. And this is something you summarize really beautifully in the very last part of your book. Um, so I'll just quote from it here. Um, Criticized during its existence, denounced after it expired, and forgotten as it became unfamiliar, office purchase is a historical conundrum. It challenges us to think of ways to explain and understand how a nakedly transactional relationship could exist and thrive for so long in a government system that officially sponsored an ideology that shunned profit-seeking. Its existence proves that wealth was far more influential than assumed in this supposed meritocracy. And then you touch on a little bit um, the link. The link between wealth and power has always been one of the most important relationships in any in any organized society. Rarely do we get a chance to understand it as a fresh problem that undermines so many existing assumptions about a society we thought we knew well office purchase is precisely such a system. And that is where the book ends. <laughs> um, so with that, is there anything you'd especially like to, you know, highlight or that you'd like listeners to take away from this as regards to meritocracy, the big ideas you're sort of touching on and thinking about here? Speaking of meritocracy, that volume that we mm. worked on. Mm. <laughs> <clears throat> um, so I wrote that, you know, a co-author article in that book, right? Uh, Making meritocracy in China and India is that the title? Yeah, that's the title. Um, uh, and uh, one of the points I made was uh, historians subsequent to the Qing, uh, especially in the West. Uh, tended to pitch family and merit as opposite ends, um, uh, as somehow diametrically opposed. Merit is understood in the West as an individual achievement, um, which I think has colored our discussion of meritocracy throughout. And, you know, recently there have been a bunch of books that came out uh, about meritocracy, right? As I think society has moved on from the sort of post-war sort of uh, more egalitarian uh, state to one where, again, uh, the elites are amassing more power and gathering more capital of various types. Uh, meritocracy is 
being debated again. And and one of the things I wanted to argue in that piece, and maybe I don't quite say it in the book, is that uh, family in that context can be understood as part of one's merit. Um, we tend to disassociate those two, but I don't think necessarily that people in the Qing did that. And it's important to remember our reference points, right? Uh, we shouldn't define meritocracy based on what we think of as merit, right? And in that sense also, um, there's one case I cited in the book where uh, an official was telling the emperor, well, I bought offices for my two kids because I don't want them to compete against those poor people in the exams, you know, and they're contributing to the state another way by paying money. Um, so in that sense, in his particular justification for why he was buying offices for his two kids, he also framed wealth and contribution of wealth to the state as merit, right? So uh, uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting kind of um, angle. Uh, that shows a different conception of what merit might mean. Uh, and it certainly, I think, is important to disassociate merit with exam success, because as I would like to point out in the book and elsewhere, uh, just because you pass the exam doesn't mean you succeed in, say, the civil service. Um, and uh, when money is so tightly bound up with uh, whether you get ahead in getting appointments in the government or not, at what point do we have to start considering this as merit? I don't have a good answer to that, but I think we need to at least think about that, right? And not just sort of dismiss it out of hand, as I think scholars have done previously. And sort of in relation to that, a lot of times what we see these days, uh, especially among social scientists who write about China um, and who are doing these quantitative studies on China, uh, they, they often uh, have articles or even books where they take it on faith that the system of personnel selection was based entirely or almost entirely on the exam system. And that is just wrong. Uh, it's it's a complete falsehood, um, especially for the Qing uh, with the well documented cases, uh, well documented cases of purchase, uh, and the the evidence is everywhere. But even in earlier dynasties too. So so, uh, but yet somehow that myth still persists, right? That that the Chinese governments, you know, always selected men through an open and meritocratic exam. It's like, no, that's that's really pretty far from the truth. And um, we need to we need to move away from that model where we assume as exam is the only sort of pathway to 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 a job in the government. That's just not the case. Mm -hmm. It's a very very powerful um, myth that <laughs> yeah, persists. it won't die. <laughs> it won't die. Well, I would say that this book definitely makes um, a very strong case for why that myth should die. Um, so, I don't know, uh, but as I think Peter Perdue told me, uh, uh, correcting uh, long-standing misconceptions about something is really difficult, and and people would keep citing old stuff to uh, to to make it persist. Unfortunately, yeah. On it that, takes <laughs> it takes decades. On on that note, um, thinking about decades and and projects and <laughs> projects that do good work to sort of put bad myths um, to rest. 
Now that you are finished with this book, what are you working on now or next? What is inspiring you at the moment? Oh boy, um, uh, I'm I'm working on something completely unrelated to this. Uh, so I have some sort of back burner things I wanted to work on. Like one one project I, I, I try to work on, but it's very difficult. So uh, I've sort of put it on rest for the moment. Is one where I wanted to look at families, uh, elite families, um, but to understand the matrilineal sort of contribution to family status. So uh, using genealogies, and if someone wants to work on this, you know, uh, feel free, because I try it and it's really hard um, to look at, because, you know, Chinese genealogies are patrilineal, right? Obviously, um, where information about fathers and, you know, all the men in the family are very well recorded. But the women, well, the women are just names. Uh, they, actually, they don't even have names. They're surnames. Um, so they are a Miss Lee or Miss Zhang. Um, and sometimes, uh, if the genealogy is generous enough, they'll tell you who the girl's father was. right? Um, and I wanted to use that to sort of create or try to, try to f- map out a network of people who intermarried. Um, and my very preliminary finding there, and I need to I need to rewrite that article so that I can submit it properly. Um, it, uh, it's about how um, these families uh, actually were all sort of related to each other through marriage, right? Because we 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 so rarely talk about. Um, uh, the 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 mother's influence or the mother's the network that the mother brings to the family, uh, partly because the sources are so bad for this. Uh, oftentimes, I run into dead ends. Like, okay, this girl had a father who was somebody. Let's look it up, and you can't find anything about that guy except his official biography or something. And then you kind of your your your, your story kind of ends there, right? And I ran into a lot of that. Um, but uh, my hypothesis is so this is sort of doing what Beverly Bosler did for the song, but but for the Qing, because I don't know if you agree, but you know for for people who work on the Qing, we don't really talk about this for some reason, even though the sources are much more abundant than the song. Um, and uh, so I, I wanted to work on that, and and that that's an idea that I haven't. I'll come and pick it up again later if I have more time and funny. And another project I'm working on right now is on um, the tea industry in Taiwan, which is something completely unrelated, and it's it's mostly a uh, stemming partly out of personal interest and partly out of a desire to not look at Qing documents for a while. <laughs> yeah, because I've stand I've stared at enough legalese from the Qing for a while, so. Yeah. Well, best of luck with those pro- projects going forward. One, continuing, I suppose, your interest in sort of families, and one where hopefully you will um, not have to look at Ching legalese for a little while. Yeah. At some point, I, I, I want to write a, a, a more institutionally you know, focused history of purchase, but that's probably for later. <laughs> Well, best of luck with all of that and the later project and expanding chapters two and three into their own books. Um, And thank you again for taking the time to talk with me about this book. Well, thanks for having me.